Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm fortunate to have Professor Nikki Turner with us to discuss COVID vaccine hesitancy and how to best encourage our patients to move forward to complete vaccination. Nikki is an academic general practitioner, the director of IMAC, the Immunisation Advisory Centre, and professor in the Department of General Practice and Primary Health Care at the University of Auckland. Nikki is a member of many things, but particularly relevant today is her alliance with three New Zealand COVID-19 vaccine science and vaccine implementation committees involving MBIE and the Ministry of Health. So welcome, Nikki, and thank you for being with us. Kia ora. Thanks, Louise. So, Nikki, vaccine hesitancy, particularly with the COVID vaccine, we know there is hesitancy coming from a place of uncertainty, confusion, and sometimes fear. Approximately 30% of our New Zealanders are vaccine hesitant. So, Nikki, let's start with some terminology. Amongst unvaccinated patients, there's a spectrum, isn't there? from vaccine hesitant, ranging through to vaccine ready and vaccine neutral and vaccine resistant. So I wonder if you could just unpack these terms for us. Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I'm not always sure hesitancy is a good word because it implies an individual decision making. And what the science is really clear about is we are very much within our um, social environments and communities around us. And what ends up somebody not having a vaccine will be a mixture of factors. And there's not a single factor in it. So there'll be a little bit of your personal belief system, a bit of your community around you, a bit of your fears, a bit of needle phobia, and maybe you don't have a good relationship with your local general practice. It'll all be mixed up together. And then this one word hesitancy implies that individuals are anti-vaccination. It is not anti-vaccination. It's a pile of barriers to why people don't get vaccinated. And as Louise has just pointed out, it's a spectrum and people shift it along it all the time. So there's no magic answer to how many people are vaccine hesitant at any moment in time, because you can overcome some of the barriers surprisingly easily sometimes, or you can create more batteries just through poor communication. It's definitely a spectrum. It definitely changes over time. And there's no magic number to how many people are vaccine hesitant within a community at any one moment. The Ministry of Health conducted some research, I understand, that is part of an ongoing series that looks into New Zealand's attitudes and sentiment towards the vaccine. There are common themes that have come out of this with respect to vaccine hesitancy, if we're going to call it that. So let's talk about a few of these, Nikki. The first one is it's new or novel. Mm. Uh, People are concerned that it's too new, the technology isn't good enough, that we're being used as guinea pigs in a big expensive experiment. What would you just say to someone who's in your room with these concerns? Well, firstly, to say it's really great for us to practice the the responses to these common questions, because there's really only three or four very common ones. So use your own language and your own style. So when somebody's saying that to me, what I would say is these vaccines were developed in a remarkably short time frame, actually within less than a year. But all the steps involved in the development of a vaccine all happened the way they do traditionally. You have to go through the early studies, the safety studies, then the large randomized controlled studies with adequate people, and then you release the vaccine into the population and see how it goes. None of those were stepped over. And the reason that we got vaccines so fast was because the world basically was desperate and wanted vaccines rapidly. We have never before seen such an international consortium 
huge amounts of money, huge amounts of effort. They were making large manufacturing plants even before vaccines if we knew they were going to work or not, which you would have lost lots of money, but you were then ready to get the vaccines out there to market as soon as they'd gone through all the appropriate science. All the authorization bodies all lined up together so they're working at the science as it came. Now, the other important message for New Zealanders we were not the guinea pigs. We were not the first off the mark to take this vaccine. By the time we got the vaccine in New Zealand, it had been used in tens of millions of doses around the world, like huge amounts of doses have been used internationally. This is not an experimental vaccine. This is a vaccine now that's been used probably more widely than any vaccine I can think of. And a lot of the countries with resources put huge amounts of effort into monitoring how it's gone. So we can be very confident this is not an experimental vaccine, got huge amount of data behind it, you know, in the hundreds of millions of people being vaccinated now, well before it got to New Zealand. Yeah, those are really good points. Side effects is something that people are concerned about. And things are said like, well, what if I get an unknown side effect is commonly heard in about 40%. How will these side effects affect me? And will the vaccine affect them in the long term? I've heard that a number of times. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this is going to be like in one or two or three years. That's the question that comes up so much. And the answer again is to be reassured firstly by the science that went through all the proper clinical stages where we looked at vaccinated and compared to unvaccinated to know that the safety profile was appropriate before it got launched into widespread use. But what New Zealand has this huge privilege of is since the vaccine has been used, initially in Europe and in North America, those countries have a lot of resources and they did a lot of safety monitoring. They didn't just wait for people to report safety events. They looked at the background rates of a whole lot of really important conditions. So the background rates of immunological, neurological, cardiovascular, respiratory, Bell's palsy, you know, all of those things, Guillain-Barre, they've all been monitored closely in tens of millions of people looking at whether there's a change in background rates. So we can be really confident about the safety profile, you know, and we are confident now. We know that these vaccines can cause anaphylaxis in rare cases, um, slightly higher than other vaccines. We know that not the New Zealand vaccine, but the vector-based vaccines are associated with TTS in rare cases, which is a type of blood clotting condition associated with platelet antibodies. And we do know that the vaccine Pfizer that we use here and the other RNA vaccines are associated in rare cases with myocarditis in young people in particular. We know these things. And, you know, it's really reassuring to be able to say that. The reason we know these things is because we've had such huge amounts of safety monitoring. In fact, you know, as a medic, I'd say I never see this done for medications that we use day in, day out. We've got, you know, way more safety monitoring on these vaccines than pretty well anything we've got in medicine. So that's incredibly reassuring. And then people say, well, what happens if something appears in 30 years' time? Well, it won't. Firstly, because these are not DNA vaccines. They're not getting into our genome. So they're not altering me to turn into a different beast. RNA cannot get into the nucleus. So we cannot alter the genomic structure of who we are with these vaccines. And the second thing is, if there was any immune-mediated or immunologically enhanced capacity you would start to see the safety warning signals by now. They do not suddenly appear out of nowhere in 30 years' time. You get the safety warnings now. And because we have got such large numbers 
we can be very reassured that we are following any safety warning now. And you're not going to suddenly de novo out of the blue, see something unexpected in 30 years time. Good point to highlight there is what vaccine we're using, because we do get reports from Australia. And I think the general public don't realise that our vaccines are different and quite different and have a different side effect profile. What about effectiveness? So, you know, this vaccine's not not effective. It only affects, you know, 70 to 80 percent of people. So why would I bother with it? What would you say to someone with, like that? Well, I can say the effectiveness of these vaccines is absolutely stunning. I've been in vaccinology for 20, 30 years, and, you know, vaccine effectiveness can be, you know, a good vaccine anywhere from 50 to 80% effective. Flu vaccines every year, around 50% effectiveness, and they still have a big impact on flu. These vaccines for severe disease are well over 90% effective. Now, that's incredible. What that is telling us is that modern science knows how to make good vaccines for many illnesses. And this is a fabulous vaccine. So I'm really, really confident in a lot of science now, both the early clinical data, but also in usage. We've got great data out of Israel, out of America, out of the UK, showing that once you've had this full two-course vaccination, you're extremely unlikely to die and you're very unlikely to end up in hospital. No vaccines 100%. We all know that, you know, need to tell people we don't have a magic bullet. No, this is science. But it really is um, one of the most highly effective vaccines we have available. And oh my goodness, what a privilege. I have to say, you know, I, I feel so fortunate to be able to say, look, this is a great product we're selling. There's been some discussion recently about dosing interval, Nikki's, and I wonder if we can touch on that. And again, it brings up the we're monitoring and we're looking at evidence in the studies. So tell us about what's happening with the dosing interval. Yeah, so the original clinical trials for the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna one, were done with a three-week interval, which is not your classic vaccinology interval. So the normal approach to a vaccine would you, you give a dose as a prime dose, and then at a later date, you give a boost. Now, three weeks is a bit early for that. The reason they did that in the clinical trials is they had so much COVID disease. They wanted to get people protected as quick as possible. Now, what we are seeing internationally is um, vaccination schedules that have wider gaps, particularly in the UK and Canada and other countries, where they decided to get the first dose in first and then have a later gap to the second dose. Now, from an immunological point of view, that makes better sense. So it's not that it doesn't work with a three-week gap. What is clear from the science is you'll get a better immunological response with a longer gap. And New Zealand is going to move that way and recommend a longer gap of at least six weeks or more, unless you're at high risk of being exposed to COVID, in which case you want protection straight away. Your immune memory is likely to be better with a longer gap. And, and we're not sure yet, but we would feel that the second dose side effects are likely to be less. Because when you're giving the second dose very soon after the first, you've got really high antibody levels and you're just boosting them. So we know that there's quite a lot of second dose side effects. And we, we think and believe that we're going to see less side effects with having a longer gap to the second dose. That would apply to many of the inflammatory side effects. And we also would hope and see that the, the, this potential um, side effect of myocarditis may be less with a wider gap to the second dose. So I'm recommending a wider gap for anyone, unless you're likely to be at high risk of immediately being exposed to COVID. So can you just clarify for us, Nucky, because I've heard a lot of, lot in the media this week about people worrying that they've already had their two doses and it's too short and it's not going to be effective. So we may need a booster. 
but that's not confirmed yet? No, as yet, we do not need a booster as yet, as of today. The clinical trials, the early data was done with a three-week gap and it works well. Just suggesting that there's a bigger advantage in a wider gap. I've had a three-week gap. I'm fully vaccinated and I'm confident I've got good protection on board. In terms of a booster, some of this is probably driven by the pharma industry. At this stage, the data we have suggests that the only people at this stage likely to need a booster are those who have got like, you know, not crack. So you're immunosuppressing, you vaccinate, and you just don't get a great response. So as you'd predict, it's likely to be people who've got variations of immunosuppression who are most likely to need a booster first. At this stage today, what is it, nine months or so after the um, coming out of the clinical trials, there's no evidence as yet that the rest of us need a booster. There's good cellular memory. And even as your antibodies start to drop, you've still got good cellular memory. So watch this space. No booster for all of us at this stage. We're likely to need some at some stage, but I do not believe we're going to fall into this needing yearly boosting unless you've got really severe immunosuppression. So then you talked about a high-risk situation. So I've had my first vaccine, pushing out my second one. What would make me bring that interval forward? So it would be coming in contact with someone who's a positive case. Would that be a high-risk scenario? What sort of things would... Your high-risk scenario is the potential to come in contact with a case. And at this stage, it's really people working in the border and MIQs. New Zealand right today is in the fortunate position that we do not have community transmission. So it's really border MIQ staff, people who are in contact with people coming into New Zealand from outside. The rest of us are in the privileged position of being able to extend our intervals. However, if you think you might be at risk of being exposed in any way, you know, I just repeat, there is no problem with a three-week gap. Thank you for clarifying all of that, Nikki. And as you say, it's a changing landscape and we just have to go with the studies that are coming out. Nikki, I wonder if we can move slightly sideways and talk about our anti-vaccinator population. They're quite a vocal group. They're using social media a lot. They're putting pamphlets in the mail. They're standing outside schools. From a science point of view, what do we know about how powerful this group is and do their yeah. messages make a difference? And in yes. what populations do their messages make a difference? Yes, all of those. So we have had anti-vaccination lobby with us for hundreds of years. And we've always had a, a small percentage of population that do not support the standard accepted scientific methodology and responses to that or people who have just had really bad experiences and just don't trust anything. And it's around about 2 to 4% of the population. And, and really, it hasn't changed that much over the time. But what has changed is the media. So that now some dissatisfied voices, some unhappy people, or people who just want attention can be magnified, particularly through social media. So the problem is the magnification of the voice. The voices are few. In fact, there's really interesting and sad literature to show you that there's very few voices creating the anti-immunization stories. They're very few, but they make a lot of loud noise. And the problem they create is dissonance. It's not necessarily that people believe them, but it's like where there's smoke, there's fire, they create dissonance. So what we do know now from a communication point of view is you don't want to put the myth up in your first sentence because that's what people remember. I said to you, MMR and autism, it's embedded in all of our minds, even though there's no link at all between MMR and autism. It's the myth has got embedded. And so the challenge for us in science communication is not to get these myths embedded, but to talk the broader issues 
And then when people really want an answer, you sandwich your facts and your relevance lower down. Because otherwise, we all take these heuristics, these shortcuts with the way we see things. We just remember the first thing that comes through and the last thing that comes through. So the social media magnification of a few voices is extremely damaging. And we're seeing that internationally at the moment. And, you know, if you feel a bit anxious, you've had a bad experience, you don't trust, quite trust your government, the world's a really insecure place. You know, those little dissonances get under our skin. And then our heuristics don't take all the facts under place. They just create the fear. And it's really the creation of the fear that embeds the myths. But we have the data and the evidence there when people want to be sure what it's all about. But you lead, you lead with the message and you lead with the story. And you keep your facts and science lower down now. That's really what the evidence base is showing. Thank you, Nikki. So we've talked about why people are vaccine hesitant and you've given us some excellent information to alleviate their concerns. What I'm curious about now is how we move the vaccine hesitant person to a vaccinated person. You've given us a few strategies there with sandwiching information and facts. But what is the best kind of communication with these types of people? Well, you know, it's very much rooted in our GP consult and what we do day in, day out. And so I'm talking to a group of people who are the experts in the world at doing this. But just a few suggestions from me is that it's firstly, it's about very, being very clear of our own, um, what we know and understand. So you lead with the assumption that vaccination is what we recommend. And you don't undermine that because if you undermine it even slightly, people think there's dissonance. And then what we realize is what's going to resonate in your communication is not the facts, but you're going to frame it and tell the story. So it's the story that resonates. And as our colleague, um, Jess Berenson Shaw tells me, it's sell the cake. So what we're coming with is I don't come with a whole pile of facts for you about every little aspect of the vaccine. I come and say, this is what vaccines are for. This is what they will offer our community. So the story we're talking is a community protection story. It's not an individual you and I. It's a community protection story. And then after we've sold the story and why we're using this and what an effective tool vaccines are, and then we can sit the facts within that. And then so once you've established the story, you've developed trust, you've got a good relationship, you've developed a good communication. I think everybody knows what that's like when you feel like your communication's going well. And then you ask the questions and you respond to their concerns and questions because you've got engagement, you've got rapport, you know, you've sold the story about what we're doing and then we sandwich the facts and the accurate science well into that. And that seems to be the most effective way of, of, of supporting somebody. And you make the assumption then you're going to move to vaccinate. And, and the vaccine hesitancy really does shift in a very dramatic way for many, many people. Having access to the vaccine, in my experience, or any vaccine, has been a useful tool. So I've had patients previously who have been a bit vaccine hesitant, perhaps with the flu vaccine. Next time they turn up, we revisit it, and we actually have the vaccine in the clinic that day. I found that a really powerful tool. What are your thoughts here? Yes, absolutely. I think remembering that we don't see patients once. We see them over time and we develop relationships. And I've had with people who are concerned about issues, you just open the door, you talk the issues, you develop the rapport, and then you have ongoing relationships with them. And there'll be a time at which they're very comfortable to do it, at which point we want to make it accessible, available, and there. Because I think the other issue that we don't talk about enough is needle phobia. And many people are wrapping the hesitancy, which is essentially... They just bloody hate needles and they just hate the idea of a needle in their arm. 
And that's often wrapped around a whole lot of other things. So having the communication, the story, the confidence to say, right, let's go ahead today. And here it is. Now, unfortunately for COVID at the moment, of course, that's a bit of a problem because, you know, we don't have it available in most of our general practice clinics. But it's so helpful with flu vaccine to say, oh, I've got it here now. And if somebody's a bit needle phobic, you know, you can help them with all the tricks of the trade to move through it on the spot rather than them going away and really worrying about it and worrying about not coming back. It's like me putting off my cervical smear each time, you know. So if we can actually manage to offer the access in the moment, it's really helpful. And I hope in the future with COVID vaccines, we should be able to do that. I think that will overcome quite a few barriers. Yes, I know that's been a bit of a point of contention amongst my GP colleagues that we don't have access to it for a number of reasons. You mentioned the team approach and, um, you know, there's been this discussion about the team of 5 million. Is that an actual, does it work? Do people buy into that or are they so self-focused they're only worried about their own interests? People do buy into the community stuff. They really do. And the more we use it, the more they buy into it. We also do know we're all motivated by individual motivations as well. But if somebody feels like you're just directing to their individual motivation, then they're not really going to accept that. They, you know, they recognize that they just sound selfish. Now, we all do know we're selfish and we all do know that some of the motivations around if you want to travel, you're going to need a vaccine passport are going to be highly effective. Um, you know, we will be motivated by selfishness, but it's not the thing to launch on. I think we all want to feel we're decent people and we all want to feel that we are there to support our community. So coming with your cake, which is your community, and then embedding the other issues in it, which is, yeah, you will need a vaccine passport to travel. So will I. So we're all going to use it for that. And it's sort of acknowledging that we'll all also have selfish motivations to go ahead. And they're fine as well, but they're not what you lead with because it will put, turn somebody off. Nikki, do you have any other winning strategies to help us get people over that hurdle and get them vaccinated? Anything we haven't talked about? Yeah, well, what we do know from international and local literature is actually the health services and us, the healthcare providers, are the key drivers to whether people get vaccinated or not, even more so than people's individual beliefs. So firstly, access and our system's working really well. Shame we can't all have COVID vaccines within our general practice services. That would really help. Making access as easy as possible. Pre-calls, recalls, reminding people, bringing them in, make it easy to arrive, and then trust, trust, and trust. Developing relationships, um, culturally appropriate relationships that particular communities, cultural communities feel safe, developing engagement. Sometimes these things take time. Those are more key than individuals' attitudes. And if we get those right, we will get high uptake. Nikki, you mentioned particular pockets of our community. I wonder if we can touch on equity. So Maori and Pacific people, they have a higher risk if they get COVID-19. So our Maori population, their vaccination numbers are down. You mentioned trust, but I'm thinking also access, costs, time off work, and again, trust, trust, trust. Do you have any tips or tricks to help with this particular pocket of our population? Yeah, all of those issues are um, important and relevant. So what we're learning with flu vaccination uptake too is go to the communities and ask them how it could be easier for them and work with local communities and support local communities to design their own solutions and be part of their solutions not inflict their own solutions on them, which, you know, we're so used to doing. So, you know, allowing the community voices to come and say, look, it would be easier if it was possible like this. And sometimes it's not, but a lot of things, you know, when you work together and, and help the communities to design their own solutions with their own voices, their own styles, their own communication styles, is like to be more effective. It's a lot of hard work in the early stages, 
but it's likely to be way more effective. You know, we've known for a long time that a lot of what we do was not culturally appropriate to many people. And, and, and what I'm saying may be very different to what they're hearing. So it's really listening, 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 and trying to redesign our services using the cool stuff, what we've got now, but to really be more appropriate to the different communities, particularly for, um, for Māori communities in Pacifica, but also remembering that Asian communities miss out, refugee migrant communities miss out, disability community have got all sorts of huge challenges that we often just don't think about. You know, how are we going to get to our disability community? So really opening and thinking broader about the access and the communication to really support the trust. Just before we conclude today, I wanted to talk about our obligations as a health professional. So a statement came out from the Medical Council that incorporated dentists and doctors. I wonder if you can talk about that and what our obligations actually are. So the Medical Council is really clear that it has expectations that as medical practitioners, as frontline, we are vaccinated unless we have a medical contraindication. Now, I think we need to challenge each other on that and say we should be vaccinated. I cannot see ethically how it's right for me or you, for any of us, to be in front of a patient if we are not. Um, Obviously, a vaccination is not a magic bullet, but it will reduce the risk that I will spread to that patient. So I have an ethical obligation. And I think we need to hold each other to that. There's a separate level that, you know, some of us appropriately have a lot of questions and science concerns around this. And we know we need to know how and when to be appropriate to challenge and ask. What I have found is a couple of our colleagues making some really loose statements in, in national radio or local or local media, which are loose and, and not always evidence-based. You know, they're valid to ask the questions, but people take us very seriously. People give us a lot of power. And I think we have to take that responsibility seriously questions, then ask them in the right way and go to the right channels to ask them. If you want to check out the peer-reviewed literature, then absolutely do so. But, you know, don't just go and yell loosely because people take us more seriously than anybody else. So not only, I think, have we got an obligation to be vaccinated, but we have an obligation to express and communicate our concerns in a safe way that doesn't create unfair dissonance that then leaves our communities quite jangled. It only takes one or two medics with some loose language to really throw our communities. And once again, that's when you magnify this dissonance. And that's really tough on people because they really do give us more power than we deserve. So if as a medical practitioner, you have concerns about vaccine safety, for example, who would we go and talk to in the first instance? Well, you know, firstly, you think of who's reputable and who actually looks at the body of science. And I would hope that People would respect my own organisation, the Immunisation Advisory Centre website. We've got WHO credentialing. We don't take pharmaceutical funding. We are there to try and offer evidence-based science support. So that's a starting point. Um, The World Health Organisation stands on its ability to be as reputable. Um, I think it's the best we've got. If you're looking in the peer-reviewed journals, then use peer review. Don't use opinion. Because a lot of the time we're using opinion. And often we're synthesising from the public media. So remember that like peer review is not perfect, but it's way better than an individual opinion. I guess I find it frustrating that somebody thinks somebody's individual opinion has the same weighting as multiple peer review journals. Now, peer review isn't perfect, but that's what we're relying on is the accumulation of science knowledge. So remember how our knowledge accumulates, go to reputable sources, use peer reviews and use reputable sites or colleagues. Talk to our colleagues and say, who do we feel is reputable? If you don't trust what somebody says, 
you don't go out and learn how to be the epidemiologist yourself. You go and ask someone else that you feel safe about. You know, if I don't trust my lawyer, I'm not going to go out and pretend I'm a lawyer. I'm going to go out and find someone else who I feel is more trustworthy. And I think we have to think very carefully about when we feel like we're acting as individuals versus when we're really genuinely asking proper, appropriate questions about the science that should be asked. Awesome. Great points there, Nikki. Thank you for clarifying those. Thank you for your opinions and expertise today. I just wonder before we conclude, could you give us some take-home messages for our listeners, please? Sure. I'll do my best. Now, firstly, I want to say, remember, it's our communication skills that'll carry us through. And I know on my bad days when I'm tired, that's where I lose out. So just it is about how we can communicate and create trust at all levels of the system. So firstly, remembering the reasons why people do not accept a vaccine are much broader than just an individual opinion. And they include, particularly include the ability of our health system and us to deliver, to trust and to communicate effectively. The social environment affects all of us in individual ways, but also our historical experience reflects us. So when somebody comes with doubts, there'll be all those reasons around them. The way we communicate is vital. Effective framing and storytelling. We tell the stories, our facts sit within the stories, not the other way around. And finally, to remember that hesitant people do get vaccinated. We assume people are willing to be vaccinated. We always make clear recommendations right from the start that this is what we recommend. Um, We listen, we connect, we share our values to establish trust. We share the values that I vaccinate, I vaccinate my family, I support it. These are the values I have as a health provider, knowing the science and for our communities. We sell the whole cake. We're here in this together as a community. We may have doubts and questions, but we're here together as a community and we're here to help you. So it's all about our communication skills, really, again, as it always is in general practice. And thanks very much for putting up with me. I really appreciate all your time. And I'm sure many of you have got a lot more wisdom than I have about how to crack the communication, but at least we can keep practicing it every day with our patient. Kia ora Kia Nikki. If you're a New Zealand GP, you're able to claim CPD points, so please log them. And there'll be a list of resources on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.